HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to the Heritage Radio Network on tour. I'm Sam Ben Ruby from the Grape Nation. Today we're broadcasting live from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We want to thank the Julia Child Foundation for making our coverage possible and to Charleston Wine and Food Festival for having Atron down here for the fifth year. Um, our guest today is Eric Asimov. Really needs no introduction, but he is the wine critic for the New York Times. Eric, welcome back to the Great Nation. Sam, I'm always happy to talk to you. You've sat at the studio with Roberta Zami. I think this is our third time here. Yes. I think as long as I'm here and you're here, I'm not going to let you not come here. So I'm <laughs> well, happy. It's a, it's a pleasure. I'm happy that uh, you agreed to do this. Um, right out of the block, I want to talk about something that you recently uh, wrote about in The Poor, your New York Times column. And it kind of resonated with me because when I do the show and when I talk to people, you know, wine's a pretty rangy subject. But I think a lot of people, they, they, they have this fear and understanding of buying, drinking, ordering wine. And you did a column and you suggested five questions to banish that fear. And I told you off air that I try to get this answer out of Psalms and wine people and they never direct, you know, they, they, they never get direct to it. So let's talk about this for a few minutes because it's, it's fresh in the column and, you know, I have you here. Because um, I believe if you can't buy good wine, you're, you're kind of screwed if you don't know how to do it. So there were five... Um, five points that you made, five questions to ask, really. The first question was, when you're looking to buy wine, and can we apply this? No, this is more retail, not restaurant. The first question you ask is, what's the occasion? Well, I, I would say that's um, retail and restaurant. I wanted to make sure, because I think- universal in okay. a way. But um, let me uh, preface that by saying that, um, you know, wine is, everybody knows wine is intimidating. And it's especially intimidating for Americans who haven't grown up with it on their table. And, um, the, and it's especially intimidating if you're not in a wine region because instead of just drinking what's made in your community, you're, you've got the whole world right. to choose from. And nobody can really educate themselves about everything that's on the shopper or on the wine list. And uh, part of it is also American wine culture, 
which has um, sort of portrayed wine as a connoisseur's field. It's something really rational that if you read enough books and go to enough classes and, and blind taste so you can identify a Sauvignon Blanc at 20 paces, then that makes it more You'll intimidating, right? About wine, exactly. Right. Nobody wants to go through that. No, and and really, wine is is just a pleasurable beverage. It's great fun. It's a lot of fun to drink. And if you want to learn more about it, that's great. But you don't really have to know anything about wine. But you do have to. You do have to um, be because of this atmosphere. You have to be uh, take steps to make yourself comfortable, which sounds a little, um, you know, counterintuitive. But yes. So, so, so the first question. Let's talk about the at occasion. Least the five things. You know, one of the most important things about wine is the occasion. So you know, for years people have been uh, rating wines on a hundred point scale and it gives the impression that there's a universal scale for saying this wine is great, this wine is very good, this wine's terrible and that's the way it is. And wouldn't you always want to have the best wine? Yes. Yeah. But that doesn't really make sense when you're choosing a wine because sometimes the wine that's rated the best, the best wine in the world, is not the right wine for the, the context that you're drinking it in. And so there are nights, Latash is a bottle of, of red burgundy that goes for thousands of dollars. If it's you one can of the get it. Coveted wines in the world. But there are nights where, given the choice, you'd rather have a bottle of Beaujolais because it's the right beverage for that, that place. And it's, and you wouldn't enjoy the the Latash in the way that a wine of that stature really deserves, but you would enjoy the Beaujolais in exactly the way that that wine is intended. So you have to choose wine for the occasion, and I think that's much more important than um, choosing by rating, choosing right. by uh, food or wine pairing, or, or any of these more intellectual methods that, that we might come right. up so with. So that's the first thing. That sets it up. The second thing is, you know, very realistic, and some people are afraid to ask, and that's how much do I want to spend? Yes. You're kind of laying the law down to yourself, and you should articulate that, right? Uh, you know, wine is no different than anything else. If you go out to buy a car and you're, you're, you want to spend $30,000 on a car and you end up spending $100,000, you know, you hate yourself, your spouse hates you, <laughs> your, your kids love you maybe, but, um, but, your, but your accountant also hates you. And you, you just can't, it's not responsible. And, um, you know, sure, every wine lover ends up spending a little more than they intend, but um, what people's greatest fear going into a, a restaurant is that they're going to get upsold because they're putty in the hands of the, the sommelier. So stay with that. So yeah. how much should I spend? So you should have a preconceived number in your head. Yes. And you should articulate that in a restaurant and to a retailer. Yes. And then to your point, of course everyone's going to upsell you. You know, hey, this is a special occasion. We have two last <laughs> bottles. It's, how do you counter that? Well, um, I, maybe I'm um, gullible, but I do oh, think... Oh, you're very gullible. <laughs> I don't think so. I do think that most sommeliers in the world want to help you they want to they want you to be happy 
And even more important, they want you to return to the restaurant because you had a great experience. And if you... I agree, that's if the you majority. Leave people feel they, feeling they've been taken advantage of, um, they're not going to want to come back there. And that's how you, you... You don't build business in a restaurant by, you know, making people spend $100 instead of $75. You build business by having them become regular customers. And um, so I, I do believe in the good nature and, and well-meaningness of, of sommeliers and retail shops. At the I, same time, you just have to know your budget and you have to be able to indicate in some way. Sometimes, you know, you're in a situation where you're on a date, say, and you're, you're in, not comfortable talking about money in front of your companion. Point. So, good point. you know, I'm looking for a wine that uh, is... Up in the range of, and you point to a price on the wine list. Right. Um, right. There, there are ways of finessing that situation, but you got to know how much you want to spend. Right, and, and try to stick to it. Um, the third thing is, I think, super important. It's what do I like? I mean, you have to project some semblance of what you yeah. like. This is, the, this is the hardest question of all because um, none of us really know in advance what we like. And, you know, to your point about sommeliers discussing this question, you talk to a sommelier and they'll start asking you things, well, do you like, uh, you know, uh, citrusy wines, uh, mineral-laden wines, and they use all this jargon that it, it means something different to everybody because all of these wine descriptions are, are personal. Uh, that confuses things Yeah, so more. it confuses. So I always advocate speaking in very general ways about wine. Um, I like big, fruity reds. I like... Uh, um, lean, fragrant whites, and, and I don't like oaky. I don't like oak. Right. But even even these sorts of things, um, people. I've seen people say uh, they they want a they want a nice oaky chardonnay, and uh, <laughs> they and the uh, sommelier brings them uh, a wine that has never seen oak, and they love it. So, it's it's a little bit of a crapshoot if you talk in wine terms I always like I go back to the occasion and uh, I you know what is the occasion I'm gathering with some friends I, I really want a cheerful thirst quenching wine right or, you know this is my, my son's occasion, 18th right? birthday right. and we'd really like to mark that with a with a meaningful bottle That's a good point. you know that sort of thing all right and yeah, then we all got that coming up this is uh, this is important because I think people most times wine and food, you know, are very complimentary. So you ask the question, what am I eating? Yes. So it, it should be a compliment. Well, um, you know, first of all, you don't always have to have wine with food. Right. But, uh, but I think wine is at its best with food. That's where it really is, rises uh, to its heights. Agreed. Um, I think that if you're in the home, you don't worry about pairing too much. Um, you you think about wines that won't clash, so don't overthink it. Yeah, you don't want to overthink it. No, but don't let it clash. If you like a red wine with white fish, you know, I never never tell anybody that they shouldn't drink what they like with what what they're eating. But chances are, 
if you're if you're going to have like scallops or something, you're going to prefer a white, white. wine, right? Um, a dry white wine. But even that's not always. But that's but the white. clash point. Yeah. Even though think, you may favor yeah. a red, you got to give in a little and understand. You're not pairing, but it's more complimentary. Yeah. If you just don't drink white wine, forget it. Right. But um, if you're in a restaurant, that's a very different thing because you've got four people maybe who are all eating different things, and it's really hard. And, and the sommeliers make their livings doing that sort of thing. So that's when it's really helpful to ask their opinion about what sort of wine. Are you talking about a bottle? Because you can always go buy the glass. Yeah, and I'm talking you about can, a bottle yeah. because that's, you know, I'm all, all right. about the bottle. <laughs> all right. And really, if you're going to buy wine for four people and you go buy the glass, that's not the most economic way to do it. Right. Um, if, if you want, there's, the, the bottles are much, much better buys generally. And with four people, you could probably do two, three, even four bottles and try different. Two bottles at least. Yeah. Um, the last suggested question, the fifth one, um, needs some explanation, at least to me. Yes. The question is, you're telling the person to ask, can you give me some guidance? Yes. And this is where, uh, this is the very important because, um, you know, there's a tendency because of our wine culture to want to um, demonstrate one's knowledge. This is usually a guy, I have to say. And, and we're afraid to ask for help, just like we're afraid to ask for directions. Right. And, Perfect uh, and, analogy. And the, the people, for the, the same reasons I've already said, they want to help you. They know their stock better than anybody. And I, I feel like I know a lot about wine. And when I go to a restaurant, I can sometimes narrow it down to a few bottles. But I almost always, if there's a smart sommelier, will ask their thoughts on it, and sometimes they'll pick one of the bottles, other times they'll steer me in a new direction, and I'm always, it's almost always rewarding. Same in a retail shop. You go in, I'm roasting a chicken for dinner tonight. Uh, my wife likes red wine, not white. What do, you, what do you think I should drink with that? My budget is $25. So they'll throw something like the Canary Islands out. Maybe. Which could be interesting, maybe, right? Maybe. Yeah. Chances are it'll be great. All right, so that's that's seeking guidance, you know, from the people that know, whether it's a sommelier or a store owner. And, you know, at a good restaurant, you're going to come across good psalms. Never be too proud to ask questions. Right. All right, so those are at least the five questions that you should ask, and you may even get further engaged. Um, and there is a whole column that Eric wrote um, in the Times, and you can get that, you know, online and borrow your friend's hard copy or whatever. Google five questions in my name. Right, um, which is what I do. Um, I want to get a bunch into a bunch of things with you, but before that, I think it's fair to say you put your full focus on wine over 20 years ago, 21 years ago. Um, well, 2004, so not quite. Yeah, a little less than that. Um, I want to ask you a few things. Has the definition of a wine critic changed? Um, I don't think there is any definition of a wine critic, part, period. The, right. Um, it means something very different at the times than it does in general parlance. A lot of people think a wine critic is somebody who rates wines. Uh, but is that... As opposed to right. a wine writer. Rates, reviews. Right. Or just reviews or yes. just rates and all of yeah. that. Um, I think the big thing with wine now is the stories. 
and I think you've always done that. You look for them, and that's a big part yeah. of. Yeah, I. But I think you know the. I think the um, the broader definition of a wine critic is important, and that's. Um, just like a, a book critic, a film critic, a theater critic, you're, you're looking at wine in a cultural context and you're not limiting it to a collection of flavors and, and aromas, but finding its place in, in society, in, in the culture that produced it, in the, in the world around you. All of, all of these things are, are very important and far more interesting to me than, uh, than just writing about flavors and aromas. Right. Um, have you seen significant changes because of the internet and social media as far as defining? I mean, I don't know how much... You're a pretty good practitioner of social media, but, um, I mean, a lot of other influencers... Or Psalms, you know, they use it. Wine companies. How has that changed? Things? It's totally changed. Um, you know, the the internet has given everybody a voice who wants it, and and even more good or in, bad. Great, great. Democratized. Totally. I mean, if you think Discovery, back um, twenty years, you basically had two critical voices in the U.S., Robert Parker and Wine Spectator, and their t their tastes aligned very closely. I was so it was say, like both one. with a similar style. Yeah, so that it was like one taste. And and now there's, you know, hundreds, if not if not more. Um, the problem is people, you know, anybody can give their opinion on the internet. Right. So you have to be care you have to be selective. But the other important thing is, is smartphones and apps. Right. And so you have all of these apps that people use, Vivino, uh, tons, tons of information, and, and yes, and uh, you know my own kids use um, these apps, and you're um, crowdsourcing wines rather than relying on a single centralized uh, point of view. It's an interesting time, and wine. I guess if you want to talk about film criticism and wine criticism, I think wine as a subject is so much wider. Um, as well, far as, I mean, movies, you're basically rating it <laughs> and criticizing it. Wine, there's so much more to talk about. Well, I, I think that's a narrow view, I'm sorry to say. It's okay. I, I mean, I think that's a lot of, uh, that's the way a lot of newspapers approach it. But I think that, you know, really good film critics, and, and not to be, um, you know, uh, blowing the Times' horn, Time. but um, A.O. Scott, Manola Dargis are, are brilliant, and they are always situating uh, movies in culture and, and writing stories that go way beyond that. If you want to look at Manola's story on Brad Pitt and, um, and, and the fact that you know, he finally won an Oscar, but he could never get taken seriously because he was too good looking and everybody made him take his shirt off. I, I Which bow. nobody is really complaining about, but. Right. I bow my head because, yes, I did have a narrow view of that. And you're <laughs> right and you articulated that. But I still think my point about wine being as, you know, diverse is, you know, fair too. But you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and, I, I, and, and so are you. Yeah. I, 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 that's how I approach it, and that's what gives me the most pleasure. I agree. Um, there's a bunch of topics in wine that I think are important and, you know, have been covered fairly extensively and talked about and certainly on my show. And I want to see if we could talk about a few. I think one of the topics was something that came, boiled, 
and then cool down a little, and that's tariffs. Yes. But uh, let me just preface one thing. We're still paying a 25% tariff, and yes. we just sort of dodged a larger one. Yes. So the, tell me where things are at and, what, you know, give me a little take on so, it. So um, the Trump administration imposed a 25% tariff, and let me see if I can get this right, on the wines of France, um, Spain, and Germany, excluding wines that were over 14% alcohol and sparkling wines. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a huge burden to place on, um, on, on the people who are bringing these wines in. Um, but that burden was dwarfed on, the, the Trump, on Trump's threat to impose 100% tariffs on all EU wines, period, which would have killed jobs and, and just completely... Uh, no doubt. Yeah. No a doubt. Lot of jobs, right. restaurants, importers, distributors, importers, uh, retailers, warehouse people, dock workers, and all this. That seems to have passed for the moment, and we're back to that that twenty five percent tariff. But we should never, we should not minimize the burden that that has placed on on a lot of people, not least of the small producers who depended on the American market, who now barely can't sell their wines here. And, um, you know, that's a real problem. And this administration is arbitrary and impulsive enough to, to you know, bring back that 100% threat at any time. And, you know, honestly, wine has nothing to do with the, um, with the, the trade dispute, which is focused on uh, well, aviation products, The, the 25 Airbus. was an Airbus reaction, yes. right? And, and intellectual property right. and other... Right, um, they, they, they shouldn't go... You know. And there may be good, you know, um, good reasons to impose a, a tariff, but I, and there may be smarter people who can tell you a better way to do it. But wine has nothing to do with any of this. Do you have any intel or any sense that when the end of the year comes and the tariff issue reignites, what you think would happen? I mean. Um, no, I have. I would not try to make a prediction because the 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 decision making is is just too irrational, unpredictable, or unpredictable. Yeah. erratic. To to a good point to the industry, they really mobilized, went down to Washington, and spoke on behalf of the impact at every level. Yes, and I, you, you know, know I think they really um, made known to um, decision makers in the trade representatives' office and and other people in the government who, who don't know really how wine works and, and assume that, oh, if you, you know, we put a uh, tax on champagne, which would have been covered in the 100% tariff, right. you just buy American. Or, you know, if we tax, um, you know, if you can't buy Pinot Noir from Burgundy, you just buy it from California. No, it doesn't work like that. They're all different. They can't be substituted. And if you're, you know, you, you want Chianti in an Italian restaurant. They, they were know. kind of schooled when, you know, all these representatives from every field of wine, you know, kind of explain that champagne is sparkling wine, but sparkling wine isn't champagne. And Chianti yes. is designate 
you know, so hopefully they'll hear that. And, you know, I think that um, ultimately the the desires and tastes of, of wine drinkers are, uh, nobody really cares about them. They're not respected. And it's just become, you know, it's a political joke from from the old uh, uh, Brie and Chablis crowd of the 70s <laughs> right up to Elizabeth Warren's wine cave uh, denigrations of, of Mayor Pete. Yeah. But, um, that was funny. But this was not about, um, you know, consumers not having access to the wine they love. It was people's jobs, and I think that really yeah. changed. It would have hurt Americans. I, I think that's why so many pe people came out and were yeah. so eloquent about it. Um, let me talk to you about one more issue, and it's something that we could probably do a whole show on. Um, I had a bunch of champagne producers on, and we talked about climate change because that's a particular area that I think feels it as much as anyone. Um, it's a general topic, just like natural wine is. But um, when you talk about climate change, you know, what are you thinking? You know, you're always trying to develop stories and writing about it. Um, how does sort of climate change loom over all of that? Well, um, you know, it's definitely uh, looming and on everybody's minds. I wrote five columns in 2019 about climate change. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's what everybody in wine has to adapt to right now. I've got another one coming up that I'm not going to talk about yet. But from... A little? Yeah. <laughs> you know, from farming to, like, where you're going to put the vineyard period to wine making, to wine shipping and distribution, every one of these um, issues uh, affects uh, carbon footprint and greenhouse gases. Um, how much does the, how aware is the consumer of the issues of climate change that the growers, farmers, everybody has to face? I mean, do they care? Do they have to care? Um, do we have to do a better job in articulating? Well, to of course they should care. I don't think a lot of people do care because they don't really think of wine as a an agricultural product. They right. think it, that it's you know Finished it's product it's, in a bottle. It's a pro yeah that you open. At and a party. so you know you don't really think about climate change when you open a box of breakfast cereal. Um, and and really the truth is um, it's not. The problem is so much deeper that if the governments of the biggest countries of the world aren't going to make an effort to do anything, you know, the puny efforts of the wine industry are not going to make a difference. But that said, uh, I believe that everybody has to make an, an effort just from, you know, you know, from individuals driving less to uh, right. wineries, um, maybe not separate of wine, not bottle, not using terribly heavy bottles, which cost a lot more in, in carbon to ship and, and coming up with different solutions. But it's also, you know, it, it's hex wine from another point of view because it really is an agricultural product and and wine grapes are are exquisitely sensitive to nuances in in weather and and heat and and that's why they're they're so attuned to the place that right. they're grown and when the place changes either because the temperature is rising or because the weather becomes completely unpredictable the the 
traditions that, in, you know, in some European cases go back hundreds of years might have to change too. And that's really a shame. Yeah. Um, I think you brought up a point too that I want to point my listeners to. The fact that you wrote five articles and we talked about the internet and if people want to know more about the topic and your perspective, certainly they can go. Yes. Um, Eric, we have to wrap up, but that ties into if people want to read your column, where's the best place for them to go? I know they can buy a physical newspaper. That's getting more If rare. they buy Old a physical like newspaper. Like, but online, yeah. you know, let, let's yeah. just tell everyone, you know, every Wednesday. But I think on the Internet it breaks earlier, right? Yes, it's in, it's in the physical newspaper every Wednesday, but it's most often posted the previous Thursday online. That, that far in it, advance? I didn't yes, realize. Unless that there there's breaking, like my column this week was not po posted on Thursday because it's pegged to a an event that's going to take place this weekend. Okay, right. But, um, you know, you can always find me on, on the internet, through Google, at the New York Times website. It, and I think there's a, uh, several, you know, there's a certain number of free articles that you yes. can get. Yes. But a digital subscription to the New York Times, uh, if you'll permit me to say, yes. is, is not only uh, money well spent, but it's great value because the enormous amount of work that you get from dedicated journalists far exceeds the, the pittance that you would pay a, a month. I agree totally. I was listening to Howard Stern the other day, and he was just going crazy how impressed he is of the times and the people and the content and every day and, you know, the amount. And that, that plays to your point. You are an active social media person. We were talking off air. You are pretty present on Twitter, talking wine and other stuff. Tell me some social media handles. If people want to follow you um, on Twitter. I am on Twitter and at Instagram. I am at Eric Asimov. Okay, that's just, e just my name. R I C E R I C A S I M O V. Eric Asimov. All right, Eric, as always, I want to thank you for taking time out of what's a busy schedule coming down. I know you're running back to New York. Um, there's some exciting things going on there. Um, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network on tour. I'm Sam Ben Ruby. This is The Grape Nation. Thanks again to the Julia Child Foundation for making our coverage possible. Stay tuned for more Charleston wine and food. Again, I want to thank Eric Asimov, wine critic from The New York Times. Thank you again, Eric. Thanks, Sam. This program is powered by Simplecast.